the reason FBT works is because it takes, you know, it's either, it's not allowing the eating disorder to make the choice. Yeah. And you have to stop giving the eating disorder the ability to make any choices. And, you know, for you and then other people who've spoken about this, you know, Carrie Arnold as an adult, you know, saying this is, this is what works. There can't be a choice. You have to take the choice out of it. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello. Today you get to hear the second part in my conversation with eating disorder supermum J.D. Allett. We finish our conversation on veganism and eating disorders, and we move more into resources for parents and shared experiences and how they can really help parents. They can be a complete game changer when it comes to understanding what their child is going through and understanding what they need to do in order to help. Here's the second part of our conversation. If you did not listen to last week's podcast episode, please just hit pause on this one now and scoot back and listen to last week's episode. Download that and then have a listen and then come back and continue the conversation here. It'll make a lot more sense if you do that first. Now to give you some context to start, JD and I were discussing eating disorders and veganism. My strong views on a person with an eating disorder cannot be a vegan. And JD told me about a dad that she'd heard of who had said to his daughter, listen, I'm going to go vegan so that you don't have to. Because she was recovering from an eating disorder. She wanted to be vegan. And he said, you can't do it. But I tell you what, I will. Just fabulous. Anyway, so I went on to start to tell JD about the reactions that I get every time I publish a post around this topic of veganism and eating disorders. Kind of inquisitive, not hate mail, but inquisitive mail from people who may have an eating disorder and are also vegan. And it starts off angry and then it's sort of kind of, yeah, I think you're right. I hate to say it, but I think you're right. But, you know, how can I manage this? How can I manage my feelings towards animals and the brutal way that they are slaughtered for meat in this country and the way that they're kept? How can I manage this? And also, you know, how do I work this out? How do I do this? Um, Yeah, absolutely. And there's another, there's a mom who... um, is a professor of sustainability who kind of talks on this a lot and, you know, points out to people that there's an option besides going vegan. You can choose ethically sourced meats. Mm-hmm. You know, you can make that, um, you can make that the focus. So you, you know, so you're fighting against the farming practices and all of those things that are abhorrent, um, but doing it in a way that's not going to impact your own personal health that same way. Make your make your statement and help in the movement in another way. I was a big egg eater, and so keeping my own chickens for me was a really great way of getting around that, um, you know. I have to say, I, I your chickens, I love your chickens, and I it makes me think about having chickens because it does seem like a really... Uh, I'm a chicken yeah. evangelist. Everybody should have their own chickens. They're just fantastic. <laughs> okay, so it's true. I am a chicken pusher. But here's why. If you are worried about eating factory farmed eggs, and you should be, think of all those poor animals cooped up in cages. It's horrific. You're probably buying uh, free range or organic eggs. So if you're in England, maybe you're spending six pounds for a box of eggs. If you're in the USA, you're spending five, six dollars for a box of eggs. One chicken 
costs around, well, it depends how old they are. If you get them as a baby, it's going to cost you $5 in the U.S. If you get them as a full-grown laying chicken, it might cost you $15 to $20 in the U.S. A chicken lasts three to five years. I've got one that's five years old, and she still lays an egg every three days. Little darling. She's called Veronica. Anyway, so it makes sense, doesn't it? Economically, it makes sense. Now, you think they're a load of effort, really? You think chickens are a load of effort. People that have dogs and children, and you think chickens are a load of effort. Here's how much effort. Walk out in the morning, open the coop, make sure they have food and water. Walk out in the evening, collect the eggs, make sure they have food and water. That's all it takes. Money saving. Anyway, this is not a blog about chickens. Back to the eating disorder stuff. I have a friend with chickens, and I have to say, I, I did not know chickens were such endearing creatures. And I so think, funny. Uh, yeah, I do. Is there anything else in there that you'd like to elaborate on? I think some really fantastic information. Yeah, there. I just think from the from the care parent perspective, again, it's that piece where the eating disorder will do whatever it can to make you collude with it. And this, to me, is a place where you have to draw if you can, a very hard line, especially if you have a child um, who's, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, um, as painful as it may be, you have to say no, um, because you cannot fight a restrictive eating disorder with a restrictive eating plan. And even I know you live in Boulder, I'm in San Diego, where veganism is fairly common. It's still not, you still have to spend a lot of time if you're going to be vegan, thinking about the acquisition of your food, the preparation of your food, all of that stuff that the, it just mimics too closely eating disorder behaviors. Um, so it's just, it's just not a good, uh, it's not a good fit. Quite. I think most of you already are very aware on my thoughts and feelings around veganism and eating disorders. The next thing that I asked JD was, as a parent, an advice to parents how can parents mentally prepare for what is to come when they embark on helping their child overcome an eating disorder? Um, so for me, um, Brave Girl Eating was integral to my understanding of what we were going to face. Um, so that book by Harriet Brown is one that I always recommend for parents to read. And even people that don't want to read a whole book, there's a New York Times piece where she um, where she discusses it. So I think you have to have that visceral sort of understanding of what's going to happen in terms of when you begin to confront the eating disorder and, you know, how long the meals are going to take, the, the anger and violence that may result from the meals, all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, educating with um, reading Brave Girl Eating, I think, is, is great. I think Laura Hill's TED Talk is just an amazing first glimpse to get you starting to understand. And she also has a paper called The Venus Flytrap. Um, I'm not sure if you've read it or not. If not, it's a really great piece um, that, you know, talks about how you have to put all these things in place um, in order to really make recovery be the, the one possibility that, that works. So I think it's, I think you, you need to, um, if possible, connect with other people. And that's again, where the Feast Forum is great or the sites like Eating Disorder Parent Support that are closed where you can be open and um, really kind of put it all out there. I think connecting with other parents so that they normalize your experience 
um, or other carers. Uh, I think it's the same thing if you're in a, you know, if it's a spousal relationship um, or, you know, significant other type thing is that connection with others of understanding that this is normal because it's decidedly not normal. It's normal for this situation. Um, but you have to prepare yourself and you have to hear multiple times from multiple sources. There is no shortcut. There is no easy button. Um, and this is a very real, you are in a fight for someone's life and in a fight for someone's life, you do whatever it takes. Um, and for us, we were incredibly lucky to have the support of a PHP program, which, um, enabled me to keep working. So I worked full time while we were doing this. Um, and I also was lucky to have job flexibility. Um, it, but also if you're in a, in a place that's uh, remote where you don't have these services, you know, you can still basically do it yourself, um, put together, you know, medical monitoring, you're pro you're going to have to be the one that drives things and educates things, educates, you know, clinicians and things like that. Um, but it's possible. So at the same time as FBT is incredibly hard and the hardest thing anyone will ever do. And I do say that I provided deathbed care for my mom and sister, and this is, was far harder. Um, but you really, I mean, you're, it's two bad choices, and one choice is worse. So it's either you do this thing that's a total upheaval of your life and turns everything you know and every relationship you have on your head and consumes you completely, um, or you don't do that, and there's a very real possibility that your child dies, if not immediately, 20 years later after suffering years of um, you know physical health, mental health issues, and never really having had the chance to live a, a, you know, a free life. And I'm just going to interject here with a thought on that as well. Do not underestimate the misery of a person who has had an eating disorder for 20, 30 years. I get emails quite often, a couple of times a month, from an older sufferer, somebody that had an onset, maybe the same sort of time that I did, around 17, 18. They didn't get treatment, they weren't able to find help, and they're now in their 50s or 60s, and they are very sick. They are coming down with all sorts of diseases, but most of all, it's the depression. The illness is exhausting. It's constant thoughts day in, day out about food and exercise in this looping fashion that no matter where you go or what you're doing, you cannot escape from. And that's just the mental aspect. The physical aspect, I mean, osteoporosis is a huge one, but all sorts of malnutrition, long-term malnutrition, illnesses, disorders um, that come up for people that have not had anorexia treated. But putting aside those physical malnutrition-based diseases as a result of anorexia, the biggest killer with this illness is suicide. If you're a parent listening to this and you're at all on the fence, get yourself off it, take action really fast. If you're a sufferer and you're listening to this and you don't know where to start, then reach out. Either reach out to me, reach out to some of the resources on these pages, but there is a way that you can recover, and the sooner that you do that, the sooner you start it, the easier and the quicker it will happen. Okay, on that note, back to the podcast. I think with the, the feast thing, the, the, the way that the forum was structured or not structured, and I think that they inadvertently hit on something incredibly important by having that forum, where people could log on uh, and be anonymous, and parents would log on and just 
tell in detail, in a, in a sort of venting, ranting way, the horror of the latest argument that they just had with their child and the horror of the things that their um, sick child said to them, just so that they could say it, get it out of the system. And that was crucial for, for me to be able to read that and then understand, wow, there are other people that do these things to their parents. It's not just me. And it must be crucial for a parent to be able to understand, oh, there, this is a normal part of the disease, that this is not just happening to us in our family, these, these horrific tantrums and screaming matches. Absolutely. Uh, it Absolutely. And also, it's, um, it, it helps you understand that whatever it takes and life stops until you eat, um, those are true and hard and possible. And that, uh, you know, you have, you just have to really begin to understand that in the core of your being. And I think what happens in a lot of family dynamics as well is, um, for whatever reason, you know, mothers tend to have a more of a role, sort of, these are all, of course, general terms, but um, in the health, managing the health of the family, you know, take the kids to the doctor, that type of thing. And um, so oftentimes you know, mom will also have to educate dad as well. And I think there's a component of that where I know um, really common in men, I think, for fear to express his anger. And so that's a whole nother layer you need to deal with. And if you're able to talk to other parents who, who've who been able to recognize that, that that's the paradigm that's happening, um, you know, in our house, it was, that was definitely true. That was a little, you know, piece of our journey was, um, I mean, it was terrifying for him to see this happening to his little girl. And that fear, the fear combines with the fixer mentality, like that there must be a way to just do this right now. So all of that, that forum will provide, um, you know, initially a space where you can learn that this is a really common dynamic and then some ways to help. And then um, one thing that I think is really, really important and is one of the core, um, was one of the core values of, um, starting eating disorder parent support with a group of people is that we definitely need to bring the men into this as well. There's really no, um, you know, autism. It wasn't, it wasn't mothers who started changing the paradigm of autism. It was parents. And I think that's, um, very true in eating disorder world. And I think that one of the ways we can get more dads in is when the dads and spouses and males, husbands and things like that, are involved in the caretaking and the refeeding and all of that, then that starts their own journey. And then they transfer into becoming, I think the activists, which are really important because I firmly believe that it's going to be, um, at the end of the day, it's almost always families that make the major changes Yes, because nobody cares more than families do. Um, another thing that I've had or I've noticed is particularly difficult for some parents is before they understand that they're going to have to make changes that will affect the entire family. And I think initially I've spoken to a number of parents that they, they, they want to try and protect the other siblings or the rest of the family from their one child's eating disorder. And they want life to be as, like you said before, normal as possible, but understanding that it's not going to be normal. For example, I have one parent, and like me, I, I in recovery stage, I went through massive nighttime binges, which was just very, it wasn't helpful. It sounds like it would be if somebody is trying to put on weight and recover from an eating disorder, but it wasn't helpful mentally at all. And 
I um, spoke to a lady and her daughter was was doing that same thing. And, you know, she was saying, I think I need to lock the kitchen at night because she gets up at night and she goes in and she raids the kitchen. She goes ballistic and then, you know, all the horrible consequences follow that the next day. Right. And, but not wanting to do that because, well, what if one of the other kids gets up and wants a glass of milk in the middle of the night? And that's a really difficult situation to juggle and try and work out how to do what needs to be done in order to treat the child with the eating disorder or the person with the eating disorder. Um, I think that's really true. And, and, you know, I this would be an area where I don't have as much lived experience because she was the youngest and the three older siblings were out of the house so they weren't face to face with it. Um, and were very, very supportive of her, um, very integral in her recovery in terms of support, just texting and motivational type of things. Um, and I just, I try and tell people, I, I believe this is the way it would have played out in our house. If there were younger siblings or whatever, um, you are setting an example that you will do whatever it takes to save this child's life. And if it should happen that one of you gets sick with something, what I'm bringing to bear here is what I would bring to bear for you. So that should give you a certain amount of trust and security in knowing that would happen. And I, I think, you know, it is sort of an interesting thing. And I think this ties back a little bit into the old school parent blame component of this. Um, we don't, I mean, if you if you have a kid that has cancer and one of the parents has to go with them to St. Jude's and stay there for six months and, you know, that kind of thing, or you have somebody in your house who who's, you know, significantly disabled and the family life has to organize around, you know, those appointments and how outings are so much harder. If it's a physical illness, we really don't think twice about that. I mean, we, of course, you hope that in a loving, caring family, you're going to, you know, pay attention to the cues of the other children and provide them the support that they might need to handle it. But you don't, there's not the same level of what I feel as guilt of, you know, we can't, we don't want to impact anyone else's life. You're having an incredible health crisis, a life-threatening health crisis in your family. It's going to impact everybody in the family's life. And what I generally say to people who are really um, reluctant to hear that message, planning a funeral is going to impact your family's life a lot, long term. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, and also the contrast between how it, you know, a physical disability or a more physical illness such as cancer, something that's such, so much easier to see, is acceptable. And even, well, of course the entire family's life has to change. This is what's happened. Whereas for an eating disorder, we're still not there, really. No, we're not. And, it, and again, it's that piece where the people who suffer the the least amount of time, the shortest amount of time that suffer themselves and the family, and of course it's not universal. There are always outliers. But in general, if you just dive into this like you're cannonballing into a pool and you just start like kicking ass and taking names and refeeding and challenging and everything you need to do and stopping the behaviors and sleeping with your kid if you need to keep their legs from jiggling through the night – um, all of that type of stuff, you will actually spend less time impacting everybody else's life if you do it that way. So I tell people if you have little ones, maybe you send them, you know, maybe you send them to live with grandma for three months. If you if they can't see, you know, if, if it's too much for them to see those battles, 
um, then maybe that's how you handle it, you know, or you send them to the neighbors during mealtime or whatever it is. Um, but you can't not do it because it negatively impacts everyone else. You just can't. Yes. And I think that you've said it a couple of times here that it's the parents that really dive in. And I think that it's difficult. It's just human nature not to want to cause a fuss, cause an argument, create a scene. But eating disorders have to be disrupted. That's the only way is, is very, that you disrupt them, you kick them out. Yeah, absolutely. And it all sounds, it all sounds crazy. And I mean, this is why, you know, sometimes we see, you'll see families who've, um, you know, left treatment a couple of times and then they come back the third time and they say, okay, now I've heard everything. And now I do understand because we've tried to do it the low and slow way and the, you know, you know, we didn't take away the sport or whatever it is, you know, that type of thing. And, um, especially, um, the, uh, the achievement piece of it too, not only for a lot of kids is their own, um, high achieving is, is a big part of who they are. It's also part of who, you know, their families are and those types of things. And especially the kids that are the, uh, elite ballet dancers and, um, cross country runners and all of those types of things. Um, you've got to go through a whole thing where you have to realize that it may in fact not be possible for your child to live and compete at a high level in ice skating or whatever it is. Um, and so, and I know we're a big sports family as well. Um, water polo was what my kids played. Um, and so if you just take that out of your life, that is a big gaping hole and it is hard to understand. Um, and it also may be necessary. Some people can go back to their sport. Um, some people never can. Um, and I know even without being a compulsive exerciser, it was three years before my daughter could safely go back into a gym and just work out like a normal person. Um, because at any time before that she was still, uh, exercise, all exercise had to be done in the context of fun. Um, so surfing with friends, hiking with friends, that kind of stuff is okay. But the gym workout is a completely different thing. And, um, you know, all of those little things are things that families have to recognize. And also the person affected has to recognize, which again, is something you're so awesome and discussing about the ways you challenge yourself. Um, so as not to let the eating disorder back in. And that was a particularly difficult one for me because uh, I was very sporty as a child, as, as a teenager. And then um, when I had onset anorexia at 17, it, it, the, the, the illness um, convoluted my, my sport and turned it into an obsession and very unhealthy at that. And it was... In, in that recovery phase, and I did, I cut out, I made myself completely stop cold turkey, the running, all of the sports. And it, it was very difficult because there was a lot of just sort of tantrums and it's not fair. Like, I love this. It's not fair. Why can't I do this? And I, you know, it took me a while just to come to terms with and be okay with, it's not fair. But you just, same with the veganism thing. It's not fair that I can't be a vegan, but life's not fair and that's you know it's not fair that I can't be a track runner but life's not fair and my health is more I have to put my health first and I think once once that initial anger resentment disappointment is over one can actually just relax into that space of it's not fair but it's just what has to happen with me you know that is to me one of the most powerful things that you can say and something that I 
say a lot to a lot of to a lot of parents. Um, I I don't I no longer feel sorry for my daughter. Um, and you know, in the beginning, of course, you do what they're robbed of. I mean, she missed her senior year of uh, you know high school. She missed a semester of college. You know, and um, you know all her friends were doing things I thought she'd be doing, and instead she's in treatment, that type of thing. And so there's a loss, and you have to grieve it. Um, and at this point where we are, I, I say to people, I, I don't feel sorry for her. Do I feel bad? I mean, sorry, you know, I don't know. Don't feel sorry is a maybe not the way to put it. But there's sort of no point in crying over spilt milk type of thing. Kids with diabetes have to follow meal plans and take injections and do things in a certain way. So it's not unheard of for there to be long-term manageable illnesses organized around you know, food and exercise and things like that. And so with a diabetic, it might be um, not eating certain things and exercising in certain ways or at a certain level. And with someone with an eating disorder, it may be eating certain foods and not exercising, mm -hmm. maybe the way the things that you have to do. So I think, you know, radical acceptance that, like you said, it's not fair, but life is not fair to many people in many ways. And you now know what your area is. And so um, have gained the necessary insight into your illness and organize your life around being healthy. Yeah, I get a, I get a once monthly reminder of this. <laughs> I, get, um, I get really very bloated before my period. And I get very unhungry and just feeling like I'm full the whole time. And there's always a couple of days when I think, I just feel like I don't want to eat whatever meal it is, lunch. I don't want to eat as much today. But then I just think, well, that's not fair. Like 90% of the other girls on the planet can like listen to their body if they feel bloated and their stomach feels so full that they're going to be sick. They can just not eat as much for that day. But you can't. You have to. And that's not fair. But deal with it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, um, I don't know if you um, read uh, Dr. Sarah Raven at all, but she has what I consider to be one of the most amazingly helpful blog posts, and it's called um, After Weight Restoration, The Role of Insight. Um, and it was a key piece. Um, I, don't, I don't send my daughter everything that I think is amazing to read, but I had sent her this one and um, was really powerful in connecting us um, in like having that dialogue around what that means. And <clears throat> I think that um, for a, a lot of people, there's a therapist I know, Tara DeLiberto, who coined the phrase adaptive eating which is to me is is a really great thing so you know not everyone can intuitively eat i think that the whole um intuitive intuitive eating as the holy grail is a holdover from um eating disorders as an emotional ish, relationship with food issue um so adaptive eating is you know sort of eat what you want but you've got to eat your three meals and your two snacks a day and you have to maybe focus on higher calorie foods. If you're, you know, one of the things my daughter's five foot 10, I don't think that her natural appetite would ever really, um, keep up with what her body needs. I mean, if, if that was the case, she likely might not have been able to have anorexia. So all those issues are tied up together. And I think it's, um, you know, you can make a plan and recognize that, you know, that's a plan for health. And a lot of people have to do that. Yeah. So there's no shame in, um, in not being able to intuitively eat to me. Oh, I can't, I can't intuitively, I wouldn't even try. I, <laughs> I uh, you know, um, I, I, I do in as much as I vary what I eat and I eat what I feel like that day, as mm -hmm. long as I know that it is, 
um, meets the calorie requirements that I know I need. So if my intuitive eating is telling me you should just eat salads today, it's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> if my intuitive eating is telling me, oh, I feel like cheese and full fat yogurt, and then yeah, I'll go with it. But I, I do, I, you know, I always, um, I, I go with what my intuition tells me, and then I check it against what I know my eating disorder would like or dislike or might try and weasel in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I think the more we can, you know, sort of have that attitude of, you know, this is just what it is, not fair, but what it is. And, you know, and again, people with eating disorders are not alone in having to, you know, sort of maybe have some external, you know, controls on food and exercise patterns. It's just we're used to hearing it in a different context. We're used to hearing it in what you shouldn't eat and what you should do in terms of exercise. Um, but it's totally legitimate to flip it on its head. I mean, health is very individual and, uh, you know, that should be something that people think about. Now, that sort of brings us to the end of my official conversation with JD. But we, we hung around and chatted a little while afterwards. I'm going to throw in some of those things that we talked about in here, too, because I think they were really worthwhile. We spoke, first of all, about the role that parents can play in advocacy for eating disorders and how conferences and attending these conferences and getting involved and really understanding the research is great for the entire industry. And, and embrace the parents because the parents have so many of the same traits, mm -hmm. you know, it's all genetic. And when we come together, and that's what World Eating Disorders Action Day, I mean, to think that we were able to organize and come up with these nine goals that everyone agrees on, I think was just, you know, amazing. And I think that's the future of things. Because there's always there are always going to be places where people disagree and mm -hmm. how much is environmental and how much isn't and different. I mean, I know my mind has been expanded a lot, um, even in terms of evidence-based treatment and talking to some people and attending conferences and and you know make opening my mind to the fact that if things have only been studied on the affluent white girls that are in treatment centers, that's evidence-based for a certain population. Right. Uh, maybe it works for everyone. I, we don't know. We need to study it. And um, so those, those, that's the other reason, I think, to if you go to advocacy and attend some of these conferences and really start to broaden your view of um, where the work needs to be done. Yes. And another thing that I think is so wonderful about being an advocate rather than, say, being a professional in the field is that I can just make these big outlandish, you know, often generalizing statements like nobody that's had an eating disorder can go and be a therapist. And a lot of the time I know there's tons of gray areas, but I do it because I want to draw attention to it and I want to get right. a discussion around it. If yeah. I was actually a professional professional in the field, I couldn't really do that without very much harmoning my, my professional oh. reputation. <laughs> yes. And I don't give a damn. I don't give a shit. I'm, right. <laughs> you know, I have nothing to lose. This is not my profession. This is not my career. I, you know, that's really, really powerful. And um, people will sometimes say to me, you know, why don't you, you know, work in the eating disorders field? And I always say, I do not want to make money from this because the minute money enters into the equation, it does. You do have to filter. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that being unfiltered is where, you know, your power comes from. It's where my power comes from. And like you said, even if you don't think you saying that, you know, recovered people shouldn't be therapists, it's not that's not necessarily going to happen, but it's going to open a huge dialogue. Um, yes. And that's that's a dialogue that has to happen, because I will tell you 
that you will never see more eating disorder behavior than at an eating disorders conference. Um, and oftentimes among recovered people, um, you know, or quote unquote recovered clinicians, you know, and it, of course it's not universal. It's not everyone. Um, but it's, it's enough to, you know, sort of ping your radar and think this is a factor we need to think about. And those of you that are regulars to my blog know that that is a factor that I think about and write about a lot and I don't filter myself when it comes to it. In fact, we're going to have JD on again in a couple of weeks' time and we're going to get into that a little bit. Yes, I'd love to delve a little bit deeper into seeing eating disorder behaviors in supposedly recovered people who are therapists for eating disorders and treating sufferers. I think it's dangerous. I think it's irresponsible. And I think that there's many things that a recovered sufferer could do in the industry, like advocacy, without actually being a therapist and potentially harming somebody that they're treating. But that's my opinion, and I'm not a professional. I'm just a person with an opinion. I'm sure that you've got your own opinions on that matter, so why not get in touch with me? Let me know what you think. It's important that we all give our opinions and tell our stories and are advocates for proper treatment of eating disorders. In doing so, we enable others to understand, and more importantly, we enable others to recover. Now, this is a story that um, JD told me just towards the end when we were chatting again. Um, I'm really thankful that she told me it because doing this podcast and writing the blogs that I write, it, it's a lot of work and I have a full-time job and some weekends I think, geez, maybe I shouldn't edit audio all weekend this weekend. But I do it because of the emails that I get from readers and the support that I get from the eating disorder community. But mostly I do it because I know that it affects other people's recovery and empowers other people to recover. And I, I wanted to tell you, so I love that you're doing this and you, your, that last podcast when you did about yourself and FBT, I was having a conversation with someone, a, you know, a person and the dad didn't get it and, you know, we, we shouldn't really be, um, you know, this is too controlling and we need to do what the people advise and just take our hands off a little and all this kind of stuff and um, send some other resources and then like think later that day you posted that and I listened to it. And I sent this and I said, this is the 12 minutes that will, that will make the difference. And now they, they have a plan and it's powerful for you to say what you've said, um, is just huge. You know, the reason FBT works is because it takes, you know, it's either, it's not allowing the eating disorder to make the choice yeah. and you have to stop giving the eating disorder the ability to make any choices and, you know, for you and then other people who've spoken about this, you know, Carrie Arnold as an adult, you know, saying this is this is what works. There can't be a choice. You have to take the choice out of it. So it flips it for parents to where they can be able to think of it as a kindness. Absolutely. And do you know, actually, I mean, the first time the first time I ever logged onto the feast um, and the Facebook page, I got into an argument with Laura Collins about force feeding because I my eating like I read it and just was like oh my god you can't do that that's against every you know everything fired off oh really yeah I actually posted on that forum against family-based therapy and that was you know that was when I was still truly sick right um, and so you know I have I have very much been in that place of 
you can't do this. You can't, this is cruel. You can't force feed someone. That's not the way to go about it. Um, right. And then, you know, obviously did a, a complete about turn on that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's powerful. I really think it's an amazing gift to share that message to people because it, it's not always easy to say, you know, I, I was wrong, you know, and a lot of people don't like to say that. But to say, you know, I went through the process and now I understand the power it's huge. And what parents want to know more than anything is that their their relationship with their kid will not be ruined. And I, you know, it's really interesting to me. You, he, I'll hear clinicians say, like, I'm not a fan of FBT because I've seen too many relationships be ruined. I have not spoken to anybody who's done FBT, you know, sort of successfully for whom that's true. No, it's not. Because we're not thinking rationally when we have anorexia causes one not to think rationally. So when we are recovered due to FBT and we can think rationally again, we love our parents. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think it is. And I think that is one of the most powerful things we can keep telling parents and that people like you um, who've who've been through it and can say that, um, you know, hearing that message from someone that yes, I do love my parents and I am grateful for what they've done. And that in particular is something that my own daughter, I think, has been amazing about doing and you know, very public about it. Um, and so that's why when we go together to UCSD to talk um, and we kind of we have our joking little things that we joke about in terms of the name calling and stuff like that. So for people to say that we can see that we can make jokes about the horrible names and the the you know the almost nine one one calls and the you know holes kicked in things and that kind of stuff and kind of joke about it now um, and even for her to say I don't really you know this story she's telling I don't really remember that one um, and here we are today loving close you know all of that type of thing and I and I also tell parents um, you know I have four kids and I'm close to all of them and love all of them and there is a bond that comes from fighting this together from, uh, you know, my husband and my daughter and I have this one special thing because we all face this, you know, face down this beast together and, and fought it and literally fought for her life, um, is really is powerful. So I think people need to know that not only will your relationship survive, oftentimes it's, uh, you know, reformed even as a stronger, more powerful relationship. What an inspiring story. Huge thank you to JD for coming and talking to me about this, being so honest and putting herself out there in the way that she does and everything that JD does for the eating disorder advocacy world. JD, where can people find you? Uh, So my name is uh, JD Olette and I am active on a variety of social media. So um, on Facebook, it is JD Olette, which is O-U-E-L-L-E-T-T-E. On Twitter, it is at Juggling Jen, so J-U-G-G-L-I-N-G-J-E-N-N, which is a holdover from my uh, blogging days, but I didn't want to lose all the followers. Um, and on Instagram, at J.D. Olette. Uh, my email address is jdeniseolette at gmail.com. And I am always happy to talk to anybody in any context and freely give my information out because uh, I just think it's so important for us all to be able to uh, – pass on what we've learned um, through this crucible of uh, it's, it's not a skill set anybody wants, but once you have it, you really should share it. Which is just what we're doing. 
Thank you for listening. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Tabitha Farrar. You can get me at info at or on my website, which is tabithafarrar.com. I also respond to tweets on Twitter. Probably the best way to get hold of me, actually, is Twitter. And that's at love underscore fat underscore. So, at love fat. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio. I think I swore in that one, didn't I? Did I mark the little E to say it was explicit? I probably forgot. Shit. <laughs>